as we all know, the Olivet Discourse is a personal conversation that Jesus is having with a few disciples. Remember, they were in the temple. There were some things that Jesus said that uh, were on the disciples' minds. And so as they walked out of the temple, they marveled at the temple and pointed it out to Jesus. And He said, you know, this, this temple is going to be torn down. And so as they walked out of the city, they walked through the Kidron Valley, they started to walk up the Mount of Olives to get, as they're ascending this Mount of Olives that overlooks the city, there's Tanner. Um, uh, as, they, as they ascend the Mount of Olives overlooking the city, the disciples asked Jesus, when is all of this going to happen? When are all of these things going to happen you're talking about? And so they sat down on the, on the Mount and they're overlooking the city and they have this conversation. So what we're studying in chapter 13 is a very private, personal conversation that Jesus is having with His disciples. What's it about? Well, the Old Testament foretells many things that are going to happen in the end times. And so they want to know when it's all going to happen. And so the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to them. Now, we will remember that the context here is that this is before the church. And so Jesus is talking to disciples and it is in regard to the nation of Israel. We're talking about Jerusalem, Judea, the mountains surrounding uh, Jerusalem and Judea. We're talking about the synagogues and the Sanhedrin and Sabbaths. And so this is the nation of Israel, not the church. And so after so many weeks, finally last Sunday, we began to ask ourselves about the church. Where is the church in all of this? Where is the church when all of these things are happening? Well, the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was something that God had not revealed yet. And now that we know what the church is, now that the church has been revealed, it's, it seems so easy for us to understand because we can look back now and now we understand that the church is what's occurring between the first and second advent. The first time Jesus comes and the second time He comes. His first and second appearance. His first and second advent. What's in between? The church. And now looking back, we can understand that uh, the church explains this gap of time between Daniel's 69th and 70th week. You'll remember that prophecy in Daniel 9 where in the 69th week ends with the Messiah being cut off. And then the 70th week begins, and it's the great tribulation period. But right in between, there's this incredible gap of time. And so now that the church has been revealed, we can see this gap and what it is. It's us. It's the church. And so now we can actually see why God will remove the church before the tribulation. Because you've got the Messiah being cut off, the church is removed, and we move right into the 70th week in regards to the nation of Israel, Jacob's trouble. So the church is not present during the tribulation. This is the position uh, that we're teaching this morning. Uh, and it's very important for us to realize that the, the time of the tribulation is an hour of testing that is global. Amen. It is uh, a time of judgment. Yes. It's God's wrath. And yes. so... Uh, Israel needs to be judged. And Israel needs to be purified. The Gentile nations need to be judged 
and purified, there will be Gentiles who will believe during the tribulation. But the church does not need to be judged in regards to salvation. That is something that has already occurred. When we think about the church and their judgment, we are talking about something that is going to happen in heaven. When the church is judged, when Christians are judged, it isn't in regards to your salvation, it's in regards to your works. Yes. Your reward or your loss of reward. <laughs> and so it's the church has already been redeemed. There's no need for the church to go through this tribulation period. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The New Testament distinguishes between the rapture and the second coming. The New Testament distinguishes between when Christ raptures and comes back for the church, when we are caught up to meet Him in the air, and when He returns at the second coming, when He returns to the earth to rescue a believing Israel. There are two different events. And the Bible does distinguish between the two. And so last week we studied this. We've obviously been moving through all of these matters. And so last Sunday we began to look at the, at the differences between these two appearances. Uh, one is not actually to the earth. One actually is. One is for the church. One is for the nation of Israel. And then we said that this is that Jesus is going to come back for the church before the tribulation period. And we gave four reasons for this. And these were the four reasons. The order of events has to do with chronology. The chronology of of the way things happen. We looked at the chronology in the book of Revelation. Uh, We saw that chronology. We saw that chronology in Daniel 70 weeks. We see that chronology in Isaiah 61. Remember where Jesus read Isaiah 61 and He stopped in the middle of verse 2. He separated that favorable day of the Lord from the day of God's judgment. And it's easy for us to see this now because we're on the other side of things. And we can see that we are the church and the church explains this gap in time between the first and second advent. And so the order of events, uh, we saw it in Zechariah 14 and so many other places that we've talked about, this order of events, the order of events in 1 Thessalonians 4 and then how it follows in 1 Thessalonians 5. The rapture of the church and then the day of the Lord. And we talked about being spared from the wrath. And we talked about how uh, the church is exempt from this. Now we could be completely wrong and the church could end up going through the great tribulation period. We may be wrong. We've already acknowledged the fact that we are sinful people. We have very finite minds. Yes. We are the, uh, the products of everybody who's been putting things into our brains our whole lives. And so it seems so difficult for a person to jump out of the, the mold that they've been put in. And so it's very possible for us to be wrong about this. But... I do my best with, with the Scriptures, and from what I understand, it looks like the church is going to be exempt from this wrath. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, and Revelation 3, verse 10, uh, where it talks about this hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world, and that God is keeping us from it. And so that was the second reason. The final one is that the third one was that this is supposed to comfort us. This is good news to the Christian. 
We remember in 1 Thessalonians, they were upset because people had died before Jesus came back and they were like, well, now what happens to them? Well, if Paul knew that they were all going to go through the Great Tribulation, then he would have said something like, well, you guys should be rejoicing that they don't have to go through this hour of testing, this time of God's wrath. But that's not at all what he said at all, is it? And then the final reason was the imminent return of Christ. That means that He could come back at any moment. And it's this last reason that brings us to the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. This is the outline for the Olivet Discourse, and so we are at the very end with these final verses. And so let's read these together. Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 28. Learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that He is near, even at the door. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house. He gave authority to his slaves. He gave each one his work, and he commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowning of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, he might come suddenly and find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. For this passage, it's, there's three points that jump out that I think are nearly impossible for us to miss. That there are signs that we are supposed to be able to recognize before He returns to let us know that it's coming, it's soon, it's near. But when it's going to actually happen, no, only the Father knows. Therefore, we are to be ready. And so I'd like for us to move through these three points this morning that are in our text. The first one, signs show when the time is near. And again, the context is the nation of Israel. So it's talking about the second coming. But we also remember here in verse 37 that Jesus says, What I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. That is an all-encompassing message for everyone who will live from this point forward. And so we see here that his first example is about a fig tree. Now, uh, when trees begin to bud, it's spring. And so he's not saying you know it's spring, he's saying you know the summer is near. And if you live in Ohio, you know that there's such a murky dis difference between spring and summer. And summer to fall, you know, you never know when you're really in the, in the summer. Uh, but he's telling us that we can look at the trees and we can tell that the summer is coming. Now, uh, we're talking about the nation of Israel, but this fig tree is not Israel. In Luke, he adds, he says, look at the fig trees and all of the trees. And so he's just using trees as an example. He's saying that when you see these things happening, you know that he is near. He's at the door. Uh, Luke adds that the kingdom of God is near. And so the point here is that there are indicators that we are supposed to be recognizing. There are signs. 
We notice here that he says that, uh, so when he talks about the tree, you guys, it's not very, this is not magical or difficult to understand. He's just saying, you know how when, when you see trees budding, you know the summer's coming. So when you see these signs, you know it's coming, it's soon, it's near. Not necessarily immediate, but it's coming. Be ready, be on guard, be watchful. If you're asleep, you miss these signs. If you're asleep, you are not paying attention. Like a disobedient Christian is going to miss the signs. And so we are encouraged to be awake and alert and watching. And he talks about how uh, this generation, in verse 30 he says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Well, this word generation can have a narrow or broad meaning. So sometimes when you say generation, you're talking about those who are alive right now. Sometimes you're talking about all of those people who have descended from a common ancestor. So sometimes you're talking about something specific and sometimes you're talking about a long group of people who have descended. All of these people who have descended from Abraham. All of the people who are alive right now. Well, Jesus is talking about both at the same time. He's talking about the near and the far because both are required in order for all of these things that are being described to take place. If all of these things are going to be accomplished, he's talking about both. He's talking about the people who are alive right then and all of the descendants. In other words, people in the future that are descendants. We think about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and uh, you know, this, this generation that was alive had to think that everything Jesus was talking about was going to occur in their lifetime. They had to have thought that. So you think about what happens in the minds of the church as we move through history. Jesus on the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about all these things that's going to happen. And when you get to AD 70 and Jerusalem is surrounded by the Romans, and everybody's starving to death. And they finally breach the walls and everybody's slaughtered. The temple is destroyed. They had to be thinking about what Jesus had been teaching. And they think, this is it. But then Jesus doesn't come back. And so now you're on the other side of AD 70 and you're thinking, wait a minute. What happened? And then they think, oh, I remember Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, don't mistake this for that. There's a future fall of Jerusalem. There's a future period of time. Don't confuse this for that. This prefigures that, but it's not the same. It lets you know what the end is going to look like. Don't confuse the two. And they're thinking, okay, well, he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. So maybe this other thing that Jesus is talking about is going to happen before we all pass away. But then that generation that was alive passes away and it didn't happen. And so now everybody now in the second century and the third century, they're looking back and they're like, okay, well that was the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying don't have to confuse that with the end times. And He said this generation, but they all passed away. So we can see that Jesus meant the narrow and broad definition of generation because in the future times, this generation is going to be alive on the, on the earth when this horrible 
tribulation period occurs and the Son of, Son of Man returns. So it's looking back. Now, quite a bit of time has passed since Jesus left. And so when we look back, we can see that there are indicators in what Jesus taught that His absence was going to be quite a while. Something that we can see now, but really might have been hard to pick up on at the time. Some of those indicators are in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll look at them briefly here in just a moment. So, what needs to happen before Jesus comes back? If a bunch of stuff needs to happen, then, you know, we can kind of relax because it's not imminent. Imminent means that it can happen at any time. And uh, the imminent return of Christ is the flagship for pre-tribulation eschatology. People who believe that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, this is one of their big key points. Sometimes they say it's their strongest point. They really camp out on it. Why? When something is impending, it means that nothing has to happen. There's nothing that stands in the way of something to happen. But the interesting thing about the Bible is that it treats the rapture and the second coming the same way. Whether it's talking about either one or both, it treats them both the same way. It says that we are supposed to be ready because it's near. Of the second coming, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, be alert since you don't know what the day of your Lord's coming is. Be alert because you don't know when it's coming. You might be thinking, well, I can think of a lot of things that have to happen before the Son of Man returns at the second coming. That's kind of weird for Him to tell me to be alert. I don't know the day or the hour. Well, it's not so strange, as we'll see in a moment. Of the rapture in James, he says, Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So there is certainty that He is going to come, but there is uncertainty about the time. So, at the same time, the Bible tells us that there are a number of things that have to happen before the second coming of Christ. There are a number of things that are going to occur first. What do I mean? I'm telling you, the Bible has predicted that there are some things that have to happen. Well, guess what? There are a number of things that have to happen before the rapture. Well, let's look at them. This is not an exhaustive list. This is Israel in the second coming. The first one there is the fall of Jerusalem. What happened was, you know, I, I quoted Josephus one Sunday morning. I read quite a bit from him, and it was a work he wrote on the Jewish wars with Rome. And depends on how you count it. There's either three major ones or just two major ones. But the very first one was in AD 70 when the city was completely destroyed, the population was wiped out, and the temple was destroyed and burned. And then there's another time. There's a time that Jesus is talking about in here. A time when 
the Jewish people are back in Israel. There's a temple. They've got an army. And the world comes against them. You see, the second point here is returning to the land. Well, folks, after that A.D. 70 fall, the Jewish people did come back to Israel and they kind of recuperated and regrouped. And they began to rebel against Rome again. And the final revolt was led by a guy by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba. And like in 135, he died, 135 AD. But uh, that was it. The Romans had had it. They, they took heavy casualties, and they had just had it with the Jewish people. And they banned them from Jerusalem. They scattered the Jewish people all over the world. Well, Bible prophecy tells us that. God is going to bring them back into their land. And we saw this begin to happen in 1948 after World War II. And so we can see that there's going to be a temple that's going to be rebuilt. And how is that supposed to happen? Right now there's a mosque on top of the Temple Mount. Of all things, there is a Muslim mosque on top of the Temple Mount. You can imagine if there was an invasion by Russia... Iran, Arab nation invasion, and in the process of trying to wipe out the Jewish people, they accidentally blow up their own mosque. And when there's a treaty or peace is arranged, somehow the Jewish people are allowed to return their temple to the mount. Who knows how it's going to play out? I don't know. That's mere conjecture. But we do know that at some point there's going to be a temple. And as we were moving through those seals in the book of Revelation, we saw that the very first seal is the Antichrist on a white horse. And he conquers, he is victorious without battle. And so that is the first seal. And so he begins to rule over the Roman Empire. And he makes peace with the nation of Israel. And halfway through it, there are the birth pains that lead up to it. And then the abomination of desolation. And of course, after the abomination of desolation, there's still the remaining seals, trumpets, and bowls. So there's a number of things that are going to actually occur. But if you just look at that, really, we're looking at that temple and the Antichrist rising to power, and all of these things could begin to transpire very quickly. Very quickly. Well, remember that even after, uh, even, even before those final seven bowls are opened or poured out, half of the world's population has died. So many people are going to perish, including the persecuted followers of God. There will be many who will die martyr, both Jew and Gentile, during this period of time. And to help us visualize it, let's just think about World War II for a moment. You know, Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Then he became the Fuhrer in 1934. And then people generally, historians generally identify the beginning of World War II when he invaded Poland, which was in 1939. In September, September 1st of 1939, which would be, what, Wednesday, right? So it just depends on how you add it up because long before the invasion of Poland, Hitler was already up to his tricks. He was already taking land and he was already in motion. And finally, on April 30th, Hitler was completely defeated and he lost his own life in 1945. And so if you go from the invasion of Poland to the death of Hitler, 
That's about five years and eight months. So you can see all of the damage that can be inflicted in just such a very short period of time. It prefigures the seven-year coming tribulation. So these are some things that we know will probably that are going to have to occur before the Son of Man returns. But what about the church? Is there anything that's going to happen before him coming back for before Jesus comes back for the believers? Actually, there's a number of things predicted. All of them arguably fall within the infancy period of the church. You'll remember that in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's a process. Building is a process. And it was still in the future. And we remember that on the day of Pentecost, that's when the church began. In Acts 11, he looks back on that. And they say, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us in the beginning. And so it's right then and there, it's identified that the beginning of the church did not occur until Pentecost. And so on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers. That was the initiation and beginning of the church. And so when Jesus said, I will build my church, you know that there is a process after that. When Jesus was going to ascend up into heaven, He said, hang out. Don't leave. Stick around in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit. So it's pretty much impossible that Jesus was going to come back for the church before the church found it was founded. And it only goes to, to, to reason that He wouldn't come back until he's built the church. So there's some time there. Peter was told that he would be crucified in his old age. Where's that at? That's in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. And when Peter was an old man, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, he looks back on it and he says, You guys, be ready. I'm an old man. Be ready. I don't think the early church went around saying, hey, has, has Peter died yet? I don't think that was happening. And Peter himself was telling us to be ready. As a matter of fact, when John wrote that in John chapter 21, Peter had already been dead for about 15 years. The Lord, when, when Paul was in a dark hour, he knew that people were going to try to kill him. Jesus appeared to Paul and he said, you've testified of me in Jerusalem. You're going to testify of me in Rome. And so he wasn't going to come back until Paul was in Rome. Where's that at? That's in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It's Acts chapter 27, verse 24. Well, all of those things have happened, haven't they? It's all happened. Day of Pentecost, Jesus has obviously built His church. Peter has passed away and even Paul. The final one is the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 1, Paul, Jesus told, uh, told them that they were to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. That speaks of a process of the Gospel being presented to the known world. Now, that's not really an, an ambiguous assignment. It's more of a subjective one where it's really only God knows when this has actually been fulfilled. But we have to remember that even by the middle of the first century, the gospel had already reached Europe. 
And the disciples were going, the apostles were going in, in all different directions. And so the gospel was being spread and shared throughout the world. When Paul was writing to the first Thessalonians, he, he included himself in the rapture. And he said that it could happen any moment. We who are alive. So Paul did not see anything standing in the way of Jesus' imminent return. You know, when, when you and I look back on the Great Commission, what is the Great Commission when Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize in my name, remember? Looking back on that, we can see that in order for that to be accomplished, there was, it was going to require quite a bit of time. There's been quite a bit of time, hasn't there? A lot of time has passed. If you were in the first century, you might have thought that a lot of time has passed. Wow, it's been 35 years since Jesus has been gone. It's been 86 years since Jesus has been gone. The gospel has spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Everybody's heard about Jesus. He could come at any moment. But as we look back, we can see that there was an incredible amount of time that was going to be needed and required. And this is something that Jesus indicated in the Bible, um, you'll remember that Mark chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse. The same information basically is in Luke chapter 21. The same information is in Matthew chapter 24. But Matthew gives us an additional chapter. He gives us an additional chapter of parables that Jesus taught at this time. And in these parables, He indicates that His absence was going to take a little bit. In uh, the parable of the ten virgins, in verse 5, he says, Since the groom was delayed. In the parable of the talents, chapter 25, verse 19, he said, After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So we can see that there has been quite a bit of time and that God actually was letting us know that. Something we could look back on and see now. Um, but when we compare, and I hope you guys are still with me. Uh, I hope you're still with me. Um, when we compare the things that have to occur for the second coming of Christ for the nation of Israel, and when we compare that with the things that have to happen for Jesus to come back for the church, how does that shore up? We see that all of the things that had to, had to happen for Him to come back for the church were fulfilled in the infancy of the church within the first handful of years. And so the, the rapture of the church is truly imminent. Now, <laughs> a long time ago, in a land far away, we read this passage and we talked about three points that jump out from our text. And one of them was that there were signs that we can recognize when His return is near. And the second one, I told you we were going to go through all three, so now you're all just really writhing in your seats, aren't you? But um, I'm going to move through them quick, I promise. Uh, the second one is that only the Father knows when Jesus is coming back. Now, Jesus said that when He was in the Incarnation, when He had accepted uh, to he, he had accepted to be completely dependent upon the Father, and He did not exercise His 
deity, he didn't exercise all of his attributes voluntarily. So he involuntarily submitted to the Father. And so the reason Jesus didn't know might have only been because of the incarnation. So Jesus is in heaven now, so he probably knows. But we don't know that for sure, but he probably knows when he's coming back. But we don't. People don't. There's nobody who does. There's been many people through history who predicted his return and to the date and all this kind of stuff, but the Bible tells us that nobody knows except the Father and maybe the Son now that he's in heaven, but we don't know that. It is a time that none of us know. And since none of us know, we are supposed to be ready. That's point number three. Mark gives us the example of a man who goes away on a journey. And when he goes away on a journey, he keeps he sets his house in order. And he says, hey, I need you to do this. R.C., I need you to do this. Chloe, take care of this. Lana, take care of this. And he gives you guys responsibilities, and then he leaves. But since you don't know when he's coming back, you need to be ready. You need to be working. You need to be doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. Because you don't know when he's going to come back. I remember... Uh, I wasn't going to tell a story. I'm going to tell it real quick. Um, I remember years ago in Over the Rhine, when Over the Rhine was on fire, it was a crazy place. Um, there was a little pony keg in the 1200 block of Vine. And when you walked in it, you were just in this little, little standing area and a big giant cage and a little square in the cage right there. And this guy would, you'd tell him what you wanted and he'd serve it through the hole to you. And, um, it was just like on a, on a sleepy Tuesday night, and it was in the middle of the summer, so hot, and he had a fan blowing on him. This guy that's working in a store, he's sitting behind his cage, he's got the fan blowing on him. Well, guess what happens? He falls asleep. And what long for some of those fellows, they climb through that hole, open the door, they, they gutted that store. And he slept through the whole thing. And so by the time he called the police, uh, I don't know, there's, there's a, I don't even think there's a pack of grip on this left. <laughs> but uh, this is a picture of us falling asleep and missing the moment. I talked about how there's these uh, parables in Matthew chapter 25. There's three of them, and they all speak to this. There was one of the, of the ten virgins, and they were waiting for the groom to come back. And they all, and five of them had oil. Uh, had their lamps, but they had extra oil for their lamps. But when the groom started to come, the other five didn't have extra oil, so they had to leave to go get it. So by the time they came back, it was too late. And that was the one where the groom was delayed in his return. In the parable of the talents, he gave to each one a certain amount of money that they were supposed to use and invest to come up with something. And of course we know there was the, the guy who had one talent and he buried it. When Jesus came back, he hands him the talent thinking that Jesus is going to be happy with him. But he wasn't at all, was he? So that's a very sobering parable for you and I because it means that God has given you certain abilities and talents and He's given you time and resources and He expects you to, to make something of it to do something with it. Because when Jesus comes back, He's going to be evaluating how well you handled your stewardship. And so this is, is spooky. And then the final parable, if you can call it a parable, 
is about the sheep and the goats. And it's very clear. It's talking about that after the Son of Man has returned, after the second coming has occurred, it says that He gathers all the Gentile nations before Him and He judges them. And as He judges them, He separates the sheep from the goats. Now in that dynamic, you want to be a sheep because the sheep stay there with Him. You don't want to be a goat that has to leave. Very different from when Jesus comes back in the air and the last thing you want to do is stay on the earth. You want to go. Very different picture. Well, God doesn't want us to just be awake. He wants us to be ready. And uh, we've talked about how understanding end time events and the rapture and the second coming, whether they're one event or when the rapture occurs, if there is no rapture, there's all kinds of views in Christian uh, circles. And um, so you may be here today and you may not agree with this rapture occurring before the tribulation. That may not be something you actually, you don't see it that way. You may be watching our program on Facebook and uh, you may not see it that way. And we just want you to know that we love you. And we all know that the Bible can be difficult to understand and that we approach it with humility. And we are doing our best just like you do. Whether we are alive when Jesus comes back or whether we have died before He comes back, we are all going to be judged on how we live, how we spend our time, did we live our lives being awake and being ready or not? All of us will be judged. And this is what John is trying to teach us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, when he says to abide in Him. Abiding in Him, remaining in Him, means being awake and being ready. That way, when He comes back, we can have confidence instead of being ashamed at His coming. So let's pray.